0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors In Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors In Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Major General Frederick Boots Blisse. Blassé served two tours as a fighter pilot during the Korean War, flying the P-51, the F-80, and the F-86. When he returned to the United States in October of 1952, he was America's leading jet ace, and was credited with shooting down nine MiG-15s and one LA-9. In this episode, the first of a three-part series, Blassé describes Allied and enemy aircraft, his second tour in Korea, a couple of intense dogfights, and becoming an
1: ace. Okay, my name is Frederick C. Blesse, uh, Major General, USAF, retired. A lot of times I see Frederick C. and then parentheses boots after it. Uh, everybody's called me boots my whole life. So, Well, my father was a general in the Army. Uh, he was a doctor. And uh, when he'd come home from work, you know, in those days, they, they wore these boots and then puttees and all that kind of stuff. Dad had come home and And uh, he'd take off his boots, and then he'd put on some slippers or something, go in the living room and and, uh, listen to the news or read his newspaper. And as soon as he got settled in there, I'd go back in the closet. And uh, My my sisters tell me this. I don't really remember this. But go back in the closet and get into his shoes, and I'd come clumping out like that. And at first— my mom and, uh, and or my daughter, my uh, sisters, one of them, would say, "Here come the boots again," and that they went through that for quite a while. And pretty soon was, "Here comes boots again," and the next thing I knew, I had that as a as a moniker. And I don't know why such a thing would stick to you. I had a perfectly good name, Fred, like my father, and everybody knew him as Fred, but. Uh, all through my life, I've I've never been called anything else. If somebody calls on the telephone and says they'd like to to Frederick, <laughs> Betty, Betty says, "Here it is." It's somebody that doesn't know you. <laughs> my first impressions uh, of an F-86 were derived from my checkout uh, that I got at the uh, North American plant down in uh, Los Angeles. Here in Los Angeles, uh, I had flown the F-86. Uh, a few times we were receiving we were transferring our f-80s out and getting f-86s in this was in this early spring february to june of 1950 and about a half a dozen of us i was an engineering officer and the engineering officers in the different squadrons were tasked to fly to california commercial and then you pick up an f-86 and fly it back and then a week later they give you another one and um I had a good checkout at, in my own outfit, but it was, it was not like when, when I got down to uh, <laughs> I got down to the North American plant, boy, they didn't want to lose an airplane, and they were thorough. <laughs> I mean they, they went through everything with you. Uh, it was a marvelous airplane to fly. It, it, you could make all kinds of mistakes in it and still come out on top, you know but it had a great pressurization system. You never had to be cold or hot or anything like that. Unlike the MiG, by the way, uh, one of the things in the MiG that uh, it could fly higher than we did. But if you could get underneath him and scare the guy into rolling over, and then you chase him down uh, while he's going down from 40,000 feet or 42,000 feet down to say 20,000 feet, this whole canopy and everything else ices up. He can't see anything. So, uh, if, if you could get him going down that way, you had a pretty good chance of uh, and stick with him. If he didn't get in the clouds and get away from you or something like that, you could probably get him. And uh, they had a lot of troubles with uh, other parts of their airplanes that we didn't have. The, the F 86 was a, a very well engineered airplane that was uh, uh, pilot oriented. I don't know, it was just uh, I flew P-51s, and I flew them all from P-40s out to the F-15. And I never flew an airplane that I felt quite like I did in the F-86. The MiG was a formidable opponent because it would do a lot of things that you couldn't do. The main thing you had to be careful of was not fighting his fight. You didn't, want to, you didn't want to sight a MiG-15, for instance, at 15,000 feet and get into a turning battle with him or try to climb away from him. If, he's, if he gets an advantage on him and you try to climb away from him, you're really in trouble because uh, the MiG had uh, a better climb rate and a better turn rate at 15 and 25,000 feet. And above 25,000, it had about twice the rate of climb as, a, as the F-86 did. But we just didn't fight there. We went to about 30 or 35,000 and we didn't go any higher than that. And if we got MIGs up there, the first thing we want to do is get them down to an altitude where where we could maneuver better with them. Uh, The MIG had that uh, pressurization problem. Uh, It had a good armament system. It had uh, two 23 millimeters and a 37 millimeter cannon. And uh, it was an ingenious process. The armament guy comes up and he, he's doing this and the and the, the whole gun platform is, comes down underneath the airplane and they run up and load it and then he cranks it back up onto the airplane. Well, that was wonderful, but what we found out was they either didn't know how to or weren't not able to ha- properly harmonize the guns. Uh, I don't think they had as good a gun sight as we did either, but I'm, I'm really not sure what kind of gun sight they had, so I don't like to get into that. But we had the uh, K-14, and every time our airplane came out from an engine change or any major work, the last thing that happened to it, it went down to the harmonization range. And at the harmonization range, there was a great big target down there. They put some ammunition in the guns, and the guys got in there, put the pipper in the airplane, on the target that was sitting out there and pull the trigger. And if there wasn't holes in that, they had work to do. And the K-14 site was one of the best things that ever happened to fighter pilots. It, it came about right at the very end of uh, World War II, but it wasn't really developed to a good state until we got into Korea about five years later. And um, when you turned it on, you had a, a pipper that showed up right on the windscreen and, and a circle around it. Uh, the Pipper was the aiming point on the gun sight. When you turned the gun, when, when you just got in the airplane, it was just a sheet of glass up there. Can't, uh, it comes sound like this, a sheet of glass. And, but um, after you turned the gun sight on, you got a circle and a dot right in the center of it. And uh, you uh, had it in full ranging. What, what that circle did, if you just turned it on and the airplane was in close, the circle would be like this when it when you first turned it on, and then the circle would expand to put his wingtips on each side of the airplane. When you did that, you knew that the sight was computing, and that wherever he went, if he started to turn, if you put the pipper on him and kept it on him, you were going to hit him. Because the pipper really was telling you to shoot way out here in front of him, but in the proper place, you see. Where before, we had to do that by estimation. We did it by eyesight. If you're a good skeet shooter, that's fine. But— uh, Things like that happen quickly, and uh, you've only got a a couple of seconds in that position. And then all of a sudden, everything changes. He either reverses a turn, or he climbs, or he levels out or something, and everything changes. Uh, It's a constant uh, changing environment until one of you figures it out. When I first came back on my second tour to uh, get into the F-86 program, I was assigned to the 334th Squadron at Kimpo. And... um, Colonel Mahurin was the uh, wing commander, and I had—he was going to be the group commander of the outfit at uh, George, where I was. And when he came in there, he came out of the Pentagon. He didn't have any uh, F-86 time, and they sent him down to to our squadron, and then our squadron uh, sent him to to our my ops officer, and the ops officer gave him to me to transition him, to get him over and get him qualified in the F-86. So uh, he and I had a— uh, We really had a great time. I I had more damn fun. The guy was, he was a marvelous pilot. And he didn't have any time in the F-86 at all. And we've got to get into this. But he had practically no time in the F-86. And yet he had 22 kills, I think it was, in ETO. Uh, He had been shot down and, and evaded and got back to his unit in uh, in Europe, they wouldn't let him fly anymore. So he went to the Pacific. He got one kill, got shot down again by ground fire, and he, and got out of there. And uh, then he got to Korea and was this was the group commander where I was. And uh, in the meantime, I trained him. We had a we had more dogfights and stuff like that, and, and we got to really know each other pretty well. So he told me, I, I told him I wanted to go to Korea and, and ask him if he could get me over there because he was going over on a 90-day wonder deal. And um, he said, well, I can't get you over there, but if you can get orders to get to the theater, if you can get orders to get back to the Pacific Theater, I can get you to the fourth wing. So that's what I did. I, uh it's a long story, but I took a trip up at the Pentagon, volunteered to go, and the guy said, Stand by, we'll get you over there. And uh, I arrived back over in Korea for my second tour about, I'm guessing now, but it was around the middle or middle to or toward the end of uh, February. And I was assigned to a room, and the guys were all telling me about uh, the guy that was, had been there before. Uh, he had, was really the mainstay of the 334 Squadron. Uh, George Davis had, uh, had been killed. He had 14 kills in Korea, and he had another seven, I think, in World War II. So he was, uh, to say the least, a very experienced fighter pilot. And uh, after I got there, all these guys were still there, of course, that knew him and knew the circumstances around it. And I looked up the fellow that was flying his wing uh, the the day he got killed. And uh, he and I sat down over at the club, and I had a Coke, and he had a beer or something, and... uh, and I got him to tell me all about that mission as to how it occurred and uh, and how he got shot down. And he said, well, we were flying along and, and uh, we came in, we discovered a flight of uh, 12, four, four, and four MiGs underneath us. And George called them out and then we rolled over to go get them. A fellow named Scosh Littlefield was that was his wingman. He, not originally, but he was by the, by that time because a couple of guys got sent home or something, and he moved up to be George's wingman. And so they're down and go down the tack and attack, and he goes, they go to attack the number 12 guy, the last guy on the outside. And George hits him, and he rolls over and, and flames him and goes in. And uh, that was kill number 13 for him. And then this guy is still there and there's four airplanes in front. And instead of maybe doing something like this and coming around and getting this guy, he bypassed him because he had a lot of airspeed. He bypassed him and, uh, and went up and started to shoot at the number four man in the next flight. This guy's still behind him. Just about the time he flamed that guy, and that was his 14th kill going down, and George himself got hit. And uh, his airplane, the the gear dropped down, part of the gear dropped down, the airplane rolled over and it started into a weird bunch of things like this. And Littlefield followed him all the way down and everything. But Littlefield called him uh, before he took that other guy. called him and said, "Uh, you got one at six o'clock. And then when he started firing, the guy didn't hit him right away. When he started firing, he said, George, break left, break left, you got one behind and he's firing at you. Never moved, he just kept right on firing at uh, the guy had, and finally he, he got this guy and the other guy got him. And uh, I thought all about that. And one of the main things, and I think we covered this a little bit earlier, but one of the main things I wanted to get across to the guys is that we needed to cross-tell an information so that we don't do the, make the same mistakes twice. Many times you can get away with a bad mistake by nothing but luck, if nothing else. Luck or circumstance, you might get away with it. But you're not going to do that consistently. So that's why we had these meetings, why everybody told about every uh, every encounter that he had with the Meg, even if he didn't fight with him, if he just saw him. we might might uh, light the fire on some guy that said, you know, if he'd have done this instead of that, then maybe the next day he sees him and gets a kill instead. So... Uh, that was one of the reasons that that I felt so strongly about that that I that we needed to pass around information like that so that nobody else would make that mistake and at the time this happened I didn't have any kills I had 100, 102 or 3 missions in the P51 and the F80 but I had no air to air experience at all I had plenty of it in the states uh, with F-86s, flight-fighting P-51s and other F-86s. We had plenty of that. But I'd never, never seen an enemy airplane in combat. So I was determined that I wasn't going to make that mistake, and I was just as determined that I didn't want other people in the squadron uh, to make unnecessary mistakes. And but uh, told me, he never could figure out why he didn't uh, respond to it except that it was a common thought or idea that George had very little respect for anything that the MiGs could do. He didn't think they were very good gunners. He didn't. Think, he, he knew he could outmaneuver their airplanes if he did it right, and he didn't think they could shoot worth a damn, and uh, just found one that, one that could. I think the first MiG-15 I shot down was a lot more important to me than the actual shoot down itself And the reason I say that is that uh, I came into the squadron as a new operations officer. I had been sitting over in maintenance for a month, waiting for Colonel Mahurin to get me, to put me where he said he was going to put me. And when I got over there, during the month that I was flying, the tactics in the squadron were terrible. People flew so far away from each other, you could hardly tell whether you had a MIG or an F-86 on your wing. And if you ever had to do any uh, serious maneuvering, the guy's gonna be thrown off and you'll never see him again. And of course, the, the one of the worst things you can have is a bunch of singles flying around up in the combat area. They're gonna get knocked off. So we made a bunch of changes uh, to make a long story short. And I, and, uh, uh, I fired a couple of co- flight commanders and brought in some new ones. I flew with the new flight commanders and told them how I wanted things to go and then put them out there in a wing position to show uh, to show them that these things really do work. And I started maneuvering with him and I let him I let him go out here where he used to be. i make one turn into him and the guy's going by like this and i flip the speed brakes out and sit behind him and say, You got me sight? I said he said, No sir, where'd you go? I said, I'm from six o'clock. Okay. <laughs> so uh, He'd get back in position. This time he's a little closer. Same thing, a little closer until finally I got him in where I wanted him. And then after that, we did a lot of things. We did loops and hard hard turns, and he stayed right in there. We got back, and I asked him, you know, I don't understand why at the end of the flight you were flying so close to me. Why were you doing that? I said, you had, a, you had the regular uh, position out there. He said, "My God!" He said, "If you're going to maneuver your airplane like that, you can't. You couldn't expect me to uh, to stay out there. I had to get in here so I could stay with you." I said, "You just passed the test. That's what I want you to pass on to the other people in your flight." And I went through each of the four flight commanders. If they didn't get a fight with the, in a fight with a MiG, I made them come home ten minutes early from the combat area and have a fight around the base with the two Fh eighty-six elements. And uh, There were a lot of things that, uh, you know, the guys were not really willing to take this. They're in the combat area. A hell of a lot of them are just clocking off missions and want to go back home. And uh, that wasn't our objective. So that all happened in April of 52 and early May. And uh, it was a little difficult for me because I knew these things would work, but I didn't have any kills myself. And uh, that's what gives you people confidence in you and that you've done it, you can do it, and this is the benefit of your experience. I didn't, I hadn't. I had all, I had a ground, air-to-ground mission and P-51s and uh, P-80s under my belt, but that didn't help you. So when, when we when we sighted the MiGs, this is on the 25th of May, as I recall, of 1952, had a wingman with me, and uh, we were, skirting around on down the uh, southern part of mig uh, alley and i looked up high and there were two migs in a high turn like that and we were we were way down in here and i started to, uh, cutting them off to the inside and try to climb and still keep my position well to their rear and for quite a while they didn't see me like a minute or two and that allowed me to improve my position and then suddenly And it was rather suddenly. I saw the nose of the lead airplane come around. And it was obvious to me that he saw me. And uh, he saw me, and I saw him. And I knew one of us wasn't going home. And uh, made the hair kind of stand up a little bit on the back of my neck. (laughs) And I always had that. Every time I uh, from the very beginning until I got out, out of the Korea there uh with the 86s that always happened to me the hero i tried to stand up on the back of my head the minute i had uh, had an enemy airplane in sight and the fight started but uh it was a game in a way and it was a, the world's most dangerous game but it was uh, to this day the greatest thrill i think that i've ever had in my life it's when that guy turns into you and he sees you and you know he you know he sees you and you see him one of you're not going back anyway we kept to the inside and finally. He saw me, and and he started a big wide turn, and then started down on me. Started down with the he and his wingman, and when he started down, I pulled up so that we would go by almost uh, not head on, but at least in comparable position but i knew he had a hell of a lot more speed than i did so i've i thought as, if he goes by me i'm going to turn immediately and if he tries to turn immediately i'm going to have him because he he's going to be in a big wide turn or else he's going to uh, snap the wings off his airplane so that's exactly what happened he he went by me going down and i went by him going up my speed's slowing down his speed's increasing i made a turn he tried to turn around on this way and uh Then when I was almost three-quarters of the way around the turn, he took a look and saw that I was obviously going to get him, and he did the worst thing he could possibly do. He reversed his turn. When he did that, I flopped over to the inside, closed in on him, and and shot him down. The minute he started over and came down, the wingman lost. He, he He was just like the wingman we had in my squadron when I first got there. He was flying in the wrong position. There was no way he could have stayed with that guy when he was trying to maneuver with me. And uh, my wingman, on the other hand, was right there. When I fired the guns, I looked around, and he's all the time, every 10 seconds, he's calling me, you're you're clear, red lead, you're clear, red lead. So the importance of that kill was that it gave me some credibility for the uh, tactics and the things that I was trying to instill in the other people in the squadron. And we came back, I established a, uh, a method of debriefing. Everybody that saw... Didn't have to fight with him. If he even saw an enemy airplane, he had to come back. we call a meeting. The whole squadron would be there. He'd say, OK, here's where we were. We were at 28,000, you know, that sort of thing. And we admitted our own errors. Many times I stood up in front of him and said, I really screwed that up. I, I should have had that guy, but I got worried about my own wingman at the wrong time. I took a look, and during that time, this guy or something, you know, he said, I really screwed it up. But I wanted to do that. I wanted to tell them that I made mistakes because then they're less apt to uh, or more apt to stand up and say what really happened and uh, and not be afraid to incriminate themselves in front of the rest of the squadron. But I wanted, we wanted to know how are the mistakes being made? Why are we making them? Let's don't make the same mistake twice. That's what hurts is going up and making the same mistake every day. And a wingman loses his uh, leader, he's off flying status for a week. He's off for a week, not flying status, off combat for a week. And we'd put some other guy with him and he'd get, every day he'd get a flight ar- around, uh, around the base, he'd get a sortie, and uh, the guy would continue training, continue his, his work about how he's supposed to be doing this and, and still do it. So it was a confirmation of the ideas and other things that I was trying to instill in the squadron and I was delighted over that, over that first kill. I had a boom demonstration team before before they used to court martial people for for booming and breaking windows. It was a uh a rather strange phenomenon in the States at that time. It was about nineteen 19- now, I don't know, 48 or 49. And I was in an 86 outfit at Nellis. And I had a 16-ship boom demonstration team. And we'd go to the Cleveland Air Races and all these other places. And I'd bring them across at about 40,000 feet. Everybody, was, and I'd come over, and then the next guy would come over, and then the next guy, and we'd come down going as fast as we can, go through the speed of sound and and bust a bunch of windows. Everybody thought, oh, God, this is really boom, boom. You know? <laughs> And later on, we used to get court-martialed for doing it because... Nobody wanted to clean up the results. By the way, the reason I told you that was we needed to have a certain distance between the airplanes as they went in. You didn't want them 100 feet from each other. And uh, so we brought them in like that and we lined them up before they, before they were uh, due to come in. We lined them up with the radar sight. Everybody had the radar sight on at a particular range. And when you got that guy, then you knew you were in the right position. The first thing that happened that surprised me when I got into combat in the F-86 was that I thought I was going to go up there and and get into these big dogfights that uh, you keep reading about back in the States. And I thought every day you went up there, you mixed it up with the MiGs. If you're lucky, you got one. If you were too unlucky, you didn't come back. Uh, It wasn't like that at all. Uh, I saw a MiG on my second mission. I was up flying with uh, Colonel Mahuron, and we we uh, saw these two guys, and we tried to close on them. Uh, we The F-86, in spite of what they told you and what you read in a lot of reports, was a couple of knots, maybe two or three knots faster than the MiG, but it didn't have as good acceleration. If you put the two together and shoved both throttles forward, the MiG would jump right out in front. But after it got out there about uh, three or 400 yards, you'd start gaining on it. And it's because it was lighter and uh, it had a better uh, thr- weight-to-thrust ratio. But anyway, they were—we they were. Uh, we didn't have enough fuel to pursue it, let's put it that way. And uh, we had to let those guys go. I didn't see another MiG until my 48th mission. And that's the, the frustrating part of it for me. Uh, I came over there because I'd want to be an ace since I first started reading about Eddie Rickenbacker in the 1920s. And uh, that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to West Point, I wanted to be a fighter pilot, and then I wanted to be as good a fighter pilot or, uh, as, as the Air Force had. And I had an air-to-ground tour, and now I needed an air-to-air tour and a successful one to feel like I'm finally climbing the ladder a little bit. So this was not cutting it. Uh, I've flown now uh, 48 missions and I've seen the MiGs twice, When I went on my 88th mission, I had two kills and five sightings. Only five times in 88 missions, we had run into enemy airplanes. And uh, there was a good reason for that. (laughs) The MiGs flew once, usually. We had three missions. We had a morning mission, a noon mission, and a late afternoon mission. And the MiGs flew—sometimes they flew in the morning, sometimes they flew in the afternoon. You never knew when they were going to do. And so— they might be up there every day, but you can't get on the mission that they're on. You can be the squadron commander where you're choosing your own missions, and you can't do it. So uh, it, it was just frustrating as hell. I, I was—I uh, had uh, three pilots, I think, during the time I was there that just came into me, and before some of them left, they were really in tears. They just said, "I'm scared to death of it. I know I'm going to get killed." And I just told him, I said, look, combat is for some people. It's not for everybody. And if, you, if you're scared to death of it, if you have a feeling that you can't do this, then I don't want you to continue on because your failure will, be, will trigger off a failure somewhere else down the line. Something that you do will affect somebody else. So I said, I don't want you to worry about it. I'm not going to ruin your career over it, but I'm going to have you transferred out of the outfit. Okay, and I transferred three people like that. They all went back to C-130s, or you know, some some other uh, place. A couple of guys I knew really were not. I don't know. I don't know how I could tell. I, I really don't know. But I just felt that those guys were were trying to get a change of assignment rather than rather than the fact that they really were truly scared. And uh, I basically told him that nobody gets all the assignments they want. You got this assignment. You're going to finish this. If I can help you get a better assignment when your missions are complete and you're ready to go home, come see me and I'll help you. And I never had any more trouble with him. I I would have felt bad if I'd have sent one of them back and then the guy gets killed a couple of days later or a couple of weeks later or even 20 missions later. I wouldn't have liked it. But that never happened. I was luckier than that. We'll, we'll go back to the part where where I had uh, two kills and five sightings, and I was really beside myself because I'm closing in on my hundred mission tour. I hadn't uh, things were not not going good. It was too difficult to find the MIGs, and uh, finally uh, I I got lucky on a couple more missions. And when I at ninety five missions, you had to go in and tell the administrative people I want to go home at a hundred missions, or then they allowed you to extend for another twenty five if you were dumb enough to do that. So. Uh, At 94 missions, I had gotten two more. Now I had four MiGs, and I wasn't going out of there no matter what. And, oh, the group commander was a pain in the rear end. Uh, He'd call me in and said, you know, you've done done everything. You've got all this fighter experience beforehand in P-51s. You need to keep this for the country. You should go back home. You've earned it to go back to your family. Finally, I just, I said, Colonel, look. I've waited all my life to get into the position where I am right now. I have the experience. I'm in an outfit that's fighting MiGs, and I'm going to stay and fight MiGs as long as I can. I want want to go in Monday morning and ask him for another 25 missions. And he said, I've never seen so many goddamn dumb people in my life. He said, get out of here. (laughs) But uh, anyway, I extended for another 25, and on, I think it was the— Third or fourth or fifth, somewhere along in there, I got my fifth kill, and that I was now officially an ace. And I remember we just finished, the guys down, I rolled out and started toward home, and I thought, God, I just got my fifth Mig, and I stopped while we were climbing out, and I said a little prayer. I said, God, I know you may have to. <laughs> this sounds crazy, but <laughs> I said. I know you may have to take me before I get through this whole mess over here, <laughs> but let me get home. <laughs> let me get home and tell somebody that, that I got my fifth uh, kill and became an ace. And uh, that's what happened to me in uh, in Korea. But that was how dedicated i guess you might say or uh that i was to the proposition of becoming an ace i wanted to be like rickenbacker and in fact i wa- i would like to have been the, the I, I was for a little while he was the, the leading ace in uh in europe and when he finished he was the leading ace in, of the americans in uh, the whole thing with his 26 kills well i never got that far but i was the leading ace in the theater when i left i got up to there But anyway, uh, that's the way the missions went, and I flew them on out. I got one on the 5th, I think, and then about the 15th and the 17th, I got uh, another couple. I got two on one of those missions and one on another one. And then the other mission that we described later on was number 10. That was on about the 3rd of October, and then I went home after that. Mig Alley was an area to the west of the Yalu River that began down around Antung, which was at the mouth of the river, and uh, Sinaweju. Sinaweju was on one side and uh, Sananju on the other. And Antung was right in there. There was a big airfield at Antung that they used to always use. And um, across from that, they had about four or five airfields, and they all took off over there and formed up. And then they flew across the Yalu River into Mig Alley. And uh, that's why it was called Meg Alley, because that's, that was the first and the last place that we could contact them. And uh, for a long time, it seemed as though they really didn't want to fight. They, they'd form up at high altitude, fly across Meg Alley, go all the way down to Pyongyang at high altitude, make a turn, 180-degree turn, and then fly back, and then they'd break up into four-ship flights and land. But they got over that eventually. Uh, I know that the uh, See, there were different nationalities of guys that were flying those airplanes. When I flew there from uh, February or the beginning of March of 1952 until October 52, we flew against Russians entirely. Nobody flew those MiGs except the Russians during that time. Earlier and later, there may have been some North Korean and Chinese fighter pilots that flew them, but uh, not initially. So that was mig elley It was an area that was probably— uh, 50 miles from south to north, and maybe uh, 40 miles deep. It looked like a great big D that started at the Yalu River and went west. My last mission in Korea was not pleasant, not unpleasant. There were very, there were good things and bad things about it. Uh, it always seemed strange to me that, that I damn near got killed on my first mission in Korea, in that P-51, where I hit the truck and it turned upside down. The gas was pouring all over me and everything. That was as close, I think, as I came during my whole tour, uh, both then and in Vietnam, to uh, to really when I should have gotten killed and didn't. The 86 mission was a little different. I had a procedure in the squadron and that required a new pilot. I had designated six pilots in the squadron who I thought were the best fighters that we had. And... Uh, those six guys were designated to be the flight leader of this guy. He's a brand-new guy. He comes in on Monday. He he gets a little transition around the base, and then he's assigned to a flight, and they take him on a mission. And one of those six guys had to take him on the first five missions he had. Now, there was a reason for that. What I found out when I got there was that uh, there were— <laughs> I almost hate to say this, but there were a lot of guys that really didn't want to fight. I mean— uh, I told you earlier I fired two flight commanders. One of them had sixty-five missions. Another one had, I think, fifty-eight missions, and neither one of them had ever been in a fight. Now, it was difficult. Uh, there, that's a an whole another whole story about how difficult it was to find the MIGs and to be on the right mission. But still, in sixty-five missions, I I just called the guys in. They weren't particularly good pilots, and uh, when I when I took them out to fly with them, it was just obvious to me that these guys just didn't get it, and. Uh, well anyway uh, we had these guys go on the mission on the first five missions with uh, uh, with one of these specific pilots because i knew that they were going to take him up they were going to get him in a fight and uh, if there were migs there they would see how they went towards the migs they didn't go home when the migs were on the when the migs were on the east they didn't make a return to the right you know that kind of stuff so i had this guy that this i had a fellow was on his second mission and uh, he was not my wingman. He was actually the wingman of the number four man, of the number three man i mean, He was the number four man in the flight. But the element leader had some problems with his fuel system. I think he had a tank that wouldn't feed. And you don't send a guy home by himself. He's liable to get wired on the way home. So I wanted number four to get this mission in. So I sent my wingman with the number three man and told them both to go home. And then number four, you close it up and fly with me. So now I had the new guy. And uh, we went up. I was hoping we could uh, uh, find a couple of Migs or something, get him in a little scrap or something, give him some kind of experience. And uh, there wasn't anything going on. Mig Alley was dead that afternoon. Nothing, nothing happening. And finally, I decided to take him across into Manchuria and show him a couple of those airfields over there and see, uh, give him some experience at that and tell him how to avoid the radar when he comes back over. And eventually, we got down to the point where we had about—we were up in—around uh, Fenchen or north of Antung, well into Manchuria. And we were down to about fourteen or 1,500 pounds of fuel and said, OK, it's time to go home. So uh, we turned back, and, and I had him out in a wide position like this, and he, he kept falling back. We were, uh, we were still well north of uh, Sinuiju in North Korea. And I see four MiGs above me, about uh, eight or 10,000 feet. And they're making a big sweep around toward them. So I watched them to see what they were doing. In the meantime, we're, we're going on. And they came on around and leveled out at our on our line. And uh, saw their elements spread out. And I thought, maybe these guys have read Chapter 2. That looks like a pretty good flight. So... I wanted to get out over the water as soon as I could. There's just the two of us. He's out in here, and there's just the two of us. I didn't want him to get into a defensive fight, (laughs) nor did I want to get in one with 1,500 pounds. So I started easing over. We were about 35,000. They were probably around forty-two, forty-three thousand, 43,000. And they were coming down, and so I I started uh, uh, losing a little altitude to increase our airspeed as well. And... The Mig leader, I'm sure, anticipated the fact that we were going to get to the water before he got to us, and they didn't fly over the water. As soon as as soon as we crossed the coastline, Migs turned away, and there was a reason for that. If they if they got shot down over the water, our people picked them up and they're prisoners. If they got shot down over land, their people picked them up and they're on another mission tomorrow morning. So, I think the Mig leader realized that and. He started firing his 37 millimeter cannon. Now they had, they had three very good weapons on the Mig. They had a 37 millimeter cannon and two 23 millimeters, and the 23s were okay. They were just like our 50 calibers, a uh, stronger, bigger weapon. But you couldn't see when they fired at you. You couldn't see it coming or going. They'd, all you knew was you'd just been hit. The 37 was entirely different. It was like you uh, used to see it at the. Uh, Fourth of July shows when you were a kid. You watch, watch the uh, Roman Candle. Did you ever see the Roman Candle? The guy fires it, and you see it. It comes, looks like a ball. It looks like a little ball of fire. You can see it coming, and watch it, and it goes right on by. You see it coming both ways. And that's the way the ammunition was in that 37-millimeter uh, gun. So he knew he wasn't going to hit anybody, but he thought maybe he could scare my wingman, and he and the wingman was out over here. I called him twice and told him to close it up, and he was a little slow doing that, but Anyway, I was watching him and realizing that I had to take care of this guy. And the MiG leader started firing, and the stuff was his airplane was out like this, and the stuff was all dropping down maybe a thousand feet behind him, eight hundred thousand feet. I knew that he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna close the distance because of what I had done and because of the speeds we were going and what he was doing. But he didn't know that. And when he turned around and looked, and saw that the guy was firing it. He can see this, this ball coming at him. And he doesn't watch the same ball all the way, you know, and know that it falls short. He just sees that the guy's firing at him. And he says, the next thing I do, I get a call from him. And he says, they're firing at me. I'm breaking left. And he breaks away, which was catastrophic. I mean, we didn't have the fuel to fight. We were a hell of a long way from home. And uh, we were really not quite over the water yet. And uh, it was not a good position. So as soon as he broke out to the left like that, of course, the, the, other, the two MiGs cut him, start cutting him off in the turn, and they're closing rapidly now. And so when they did that, I, I came around to trap the, those two MiGs between my wingman and myself. I wanted to get the two of them. And, be, so, and I called my wingman and said, put that sucker in a 4G turn and keep it there start diving and keep it in a 4G turn. And he and he just started a descending spiral with a lot of pressure on the on the stick coming back. And the two MIGs were behind him trying to do the same thing. And I'm behind those two MIGs. And when I looked uh, right after I got into a turn and started on these guys. I took a look to see what the other element was doing, and they're turning in on me. So we had a nifty little daisy chain going down with a 1-2-1-2 one, two, one, two deal. And uh, that went on down to about somewhere between 20 and 25,000 feet. Uh, The leader increased his turn to stay with my wingman, who had apparently gotten a little bit ahead of him. I don't know. But the the leader increased his speed, and then, too, kind of over-controlled a little bit, and his airplane shuttered, and he slid out to the right. And when he did that, I relaxed the Gs on my airplane and... Lined him up in my gun sight and uh, took a shot at him and hit him. And a bunch of stuff flew off of him, some stuff out of the, out of the engine puff, and, the, and off he went. He took off. And within about two or three seconds, maybe three or four seconds, before I could even get around to, to the leader again, the leader broke off. So now at that, at that stage of the game, I called my wingman and said, OK, you're clear. Roll out, climb to thirty two, 35,000 feet, and go home. I'll be OK. And off he went, and he got back all right. In the meantime, when I relaxed to hit the number two man, that gave the number three and four guys a shot at me. And, and I got a hail of stuff over my canopy. And, and uh, the leader now, had the, the two men had gone, the leader had gone, these two guys are back in here. And so I just ducked my nose, increased my rate of turn, and these guys didn't stay with me. And they went to the outside. And when they did that, I rolled, rolled over like this, and this guy could see what was going to happen. It was kind of like that thing Bud got into, but they could see I was going to go over the top, and in about another two or three seconds, I was going to be behind the two of them. And when I was about here, and they were in here, uh, the guy rolled underneath, and the two of them took off in, an op- in, my, in the opposite direction. But I was glad of that. I didn't want to fight with him. I didn't have the fuel. By now, I'm down to about 900 pounds, maybe 1,000 pounds of fuel, I'm uh, uh, damn near 200 miles from home, and I'm already starting to calculate whether I can make it or not, whether it, whether the winds are going to be a factor here or what. And I'm down at about uh, 7,000 feet, so and I didn't have a hell of a lot of airspeed either. And so I, I leveled out, looked around a couple of these to be sure those guys didn't come back and were underneath me or something like that. And I was all clear; the area was clear, and uh, I started uh, climbing out about. 300 knots. And I climbed up, I was up around 9,000, I think, as I recall, around nine or 10,000 feet. And uh, I'm watching my fuel gauge and and this kind of thing. And out of the corner of my eye, I see a MiG-15. And the strange thing about that, I've thought about this a long time ago. I mean, I've thought about it for a long time. And it was the same sensation I got on my very first mission, when I just landed that P-51, the visibility was terrible. My uh, leader had gone out of sight, and I'm just to the point where I'm too slow to go around and too fast to ground loop, and out of the corner of my eye on the left, I see this truck coming across the runway, going some important thing like getting to the other side, and I'm thinking nobody would be dumb enough to try to land in this kind of weather. So and it was the same thing, you know, out of the corner of my eye, the crucial thing comes from left to right again. So. I thought, boy, school is really out. Uh, I, can't, I can't even go one turn with this guy. I, I don't have the fuel. I can't. I, at all, Above all, I've got to get out over the water. Uh, it hadn't been more than two weeks since Pyongyang Sally had been on the shortwave radio, and she said, oh, Major Blessé, I see you got your eighth killed today. But we're going to get you. We're going to get you. And when we do, we're going to hang you from the Han River Bridge. <laughs> I said, damn it, i got to get to the water. I don't like being hanging from bridges. So anyway, I'm climbing up, and, and I, I think this is really going to get bad. And he hasn't made a move. I just stayed where I was to see what he was going to do. I expected him to, to turn over maybe and take a shot at me or to turn go up like this and come down. didn't do anything. He was so content and so intent on getting himself back across the Yalu River and over into uh, North Korea to Antung or whatever airbase he was going to. While I'm down in here, he flies across from 12 o'clock, 11 to 12, and on down. Flies right across there. And uh, I can't believe this. You know, I'm thinking, why does this happen to me when I go on mission after mission after mission, and I got all kinds of fuel, and I can't find them. And here I am when I, I don't barely have enough fuel to, to get to the water, and here's somebody to fight with. And I watch him go across. And he got about halfway over here, and it became obvious to me he didn't see me. And I looked at the fuel gauge. I looked at the altimeter. I calculated what altitude I thought I had to get to to get home. And I said, oh, what the hell? Why not? And I, <laughs> I whipped it over into a turn, pulled up like this, got it close to him, because he's letting down not too fast, maybe 300 knots, but not much different than I was. And uh, it came up underneath me. I don't think the poor guy ever saw me. I came up underneath him from this side up there like this, and, uh, and shot him down. A big explosion, guy punches out. I don't think the thing took me, uh, it took me about not more than 150 pounds or, or 200 pounds of fuel to go from where I was down here to go over and shoot him down and then get back on course in about 25 seconds. So he's gone and uh, I'm still thinking I can at least reach the water. I got three alternatives right now. I would like to get all the way home. If that doesn't happen, if, I, if the winds are wrong I don't have enough fuel, at least I can get to Peng Yang Do. There was an island out there where we had a radar site, Peng Yang Do, and it had about uh, it had about 5,000 foot of very good straight hard sandy beach. The only problem with it was it had about a 50 foot cliff on each end of the of the little thing that looked to me like it would be a landing strip and 5,000 feet is kind of short uh, for an f-86 but if you're looking at uh, bailing out into the third most shark-infested bay in the world, or maybe taking a crack at that 5,000-foot uh, runway, it doesn't look too bad. You come in a little slower, and you <laughs> try to do it a little bit better, and land a little closer to the to the cliff, and uh, see if you can do it. So that was my uh, that was my second alternative. The third alternative was uh, to bail out, just to punch out of the thing if I didn't if I couldn't get home. It was obvious to me very quickly. I knew right after I shot this guy down and started climbing again, I knew I was never going to be able to fly the airplane home. I was down to about six or 700 pounds then. And in order to get home, I would have had to get to 35,000 feet and have 300 pounds left. And then I knew, and I had done this before, I knew I could shut the engine off and glide at 180 knots and glide the other, uh, it's about 125 miles from from uh, Pyongyang into Uh, to our base there at Kimpo. I knew I could do that and then get down, restart the engine at 2,000 feet and make a circle and use the 300 pounds that you got left to be sure you didn't end up short of the runway or something. That was a good procedure. We had used it on occasion, but the key to it was getting to 35,000 when you you went over Pyongyang, and I couldn't do that. So I called Dumbo. We had Dumbo on alert, SA-16, Grumman flying boat, and he was always on scene. And I call, uh, got over on his channel, called him, said, "Here's a situation. I'm I'm heading for Chodo. I don't know if I'm going to make it or not. Wherever you are, head for Chodo." He said, "Roger," and he started on up. And I kept on going. And uh, when I got to about 17,000 feet, I was down to 300 pounds. So I shut it down and made a turn. I, I gave it up right there. I made a turn to the right. And started over toward uh, Peng yang Do. And I was gliding, gliding 180 knots, and uh, well, that coastline was beginning to look flatter and flatter, and further and further away. And uh, so I thought, well, this is it. I got. I can't, there's no sense in, in going in with 300 pounds of fuel left in the airplane. And I fired it up and and uh, and climbed up to about 11,000 before it uh, before it quit. And then I. Ro- Nosed it over, picked up 180 knots again, and uh, and kept going. I got over the uh, coastline. Oh, I got took a tremendous amount of fire. I crossed the main supply route. It was about uh, 30 miles short of the of the beach, and uh, I got a lot of anti-aircraft fire. But I couldn't. Usually, you would jink, and do this sort of thing to keep them from hitting you. But I just. I got down behind the damn thing as as far behind as I could in the cockpit and just kept it on, just kept flying it on instruments and watching where I was going. And I finally crossed the, uh, I had contact with the Dumbo and I crossed the the, uh, coastline about 3,000 feet. And I got down to 2,000 feet so quickly that when I looked around, it still looked like I was just barely over the water. And uh, so I called the Dumbo and said, uh, I'm going to have to punch out. Have you, you got me in sight? And he said, Rog, we got you. I said, OK, watch my airplane. There's no way to know where that's going. Rog, we got you. <laughs> and uh, so right about that time, I said, OK, if you're all set, I'm punching out. And right, right then, one, something happened to me that was one of the nicest things, something I'll never forget. Uh, one of the nicest things that ever happened to me in the Air Force. something good about everything, and this was probably the only thing I could think about this mission was good. But uh, uh, just I was messing with straps and stuff like that and making sure i I was all in good shape. And uh, there was a radio in uh, in Ops. And it was a group ops. And whenever, whenever uh, there were guys in the combat area, the people—if your squadron was one of the ones that was in the combat area—the guys who were not flying on that mission would usually end up in ops, listening to what happened to see if they got, uh, see who was in contact with the MIGs and who's doing this and who's doing that. You know, just get a feel for the mission. And uh, my squadron—we uh, were the only ones up there by this time. Uh, So there were a bunch of my people, the people in my squadron that were up there in the ops and just about ready to to punch out. And I hear this voice says, uh, I think the first one said, uh, take it easy. Good luck. We'll keep a place open for you at supper. And the next guy grabbed the mic and says, you little bugger, you owe me five bucks. Get your butt back here. And the next guy says, good luck, buddy. (laughs) It was, it was a. it was just a series of calls. Uh, the guys just saying good luck, nothing else, and whatever they could think about at the moment. And uh, it still kind of chokes me up thinking about it. It was a very, very uh, emotional moment for me. And I can I remember after the last guy stopped, I sat there for a full eight or ten seconds, and I thought, God, what a wonderful, wonderful bunch of guys. <laughs> <laughs> and out I went. <laughs> But uh, I'd already undone my safety belt because I'd read in some of the uh, uh, intelligence manuals that if you're down close to the ground, you can get hung up in the seat. It takes too long for the, for the automatic mechanism to release the seat and then get the, the parachute to drag the seat away from me and all that. So I just undid my safety belt before I went out. The minute I got in the slipstream, uh, the, the uh, air pressure pulled the, pulled the seat away from me, opened my parachute, and uh, took care of everything. I got out maybe uh, about 1,500 feet, something like that. And uh, I was up a lot lot higher than I was when I bailed out of that P-47 because I had time to reach down and and, uh, make sure I had that the dinghy was all set and all that kind of stuff and got in the water, undid that thing, unzipped it and laid it out in the water, and it all worked. Lost a lot of maps and some other things that uh, I had in the pockets when I hit the water. Uh, I lost my helmet. And uh, so I unzipped the thing, laid the dinghy out in the water, pulled the right strings and inflated into a nice little boat. And uh, it was a nice day. This was in about, as I recall, it was the third of October of 1952. And it, uh, the water was not cold. It wasn't warm either, but it was a nice refreshing uh, dip in the, in the ocean. I swam over and picked up my maps. I got my helmet, threw those into the dinghy, and then climbed up over the side and got in the dinghy myself. About that time, the PBY had landed, and he taxied over uh, fairly close to me. And uh, they fired; they had a a rescue line, and he fired it out with a pistol, and goes out and shoots a thing over the top of you, and you grab the rope, and uh, and then he pulled me over in the dinghy. And now I'm right underneath uh, the a big open door. The guy's the guy that had the gun, and uh, he's there with uh, two other guys in the door. And uh, before I knew what he was doing, he pulled me out of the dinghy and they pulled me up into inside. And uh, so I said, Hey, wait. And the, the airplane starts taxiing away, and he starts taxiing out over the water and leaving my day. And I, I ran up the aisle. And I hit the pilot, and I said, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. I said, my dinghy is still back there, and I got a lot of stuff in it. <laughs> I won't tell you exactly what he said, but he <laughs> he uttered some means of profanity and said, I don't really care about your dinghy. <laughs> and he described it in great detail. Uh, I don't care about that damn dinghy. And uh, he said, they're firing at me from the shore, and we're getting out of here as fast as we can get out. So uh, I lost the dinghy and everything. Well, two aspects of this. Uh, it looked like I was going to lose my 10th kill because all my film and everything is down in the, going to the bottom of the East China Sea. And uh, what actually happened was, as we got into trouble, and about the time I called Dumbo, they scrambled the alert flight. They always had a flight on alert in case somebody got in trouble. They scrambled the alert flight. And to my delight, uh, Robbie Robinson was the flight commander of that alert flight. Now, he, he and I had known each other for years. And Robbie had five kills at the time he got three more later on, but uh, he had quite a history. he went to when he went fifteen years later when I was in he and I were both in Vietnam, he got shot down, spent seven years in a in a prison camp wrote a nifty book called uh, passing of the Night and uh, he found his religion uh, over that I'll tell you it was. Was really good. Well, anyway, Robbie was there, and uh, those guys were. It was a beautiful, clear day. When that airplane exploded, you could have seen it for hundred miles. And these guys were only about twenty miles short of where I was. They all had it. I got four, <laughs> four confirmations, of my kill, and then they came back and uh, and strafed and sunk my dinghy, so that the nobody could pick up any information or anything out of that. And uh, the guy, the, the flying boat took off. We went back the, about, uh, about an hour later. I was back at the base, and uh, the guys were all there. They, they, uh, they said, hell, well, we're not going to the mess hall. We're all going to the club. <laughs> the, the old one was up in the club. We had a big party, and I, I never did any drinking, but I had a glass or two of wine that night after. I think that was a pretty nice evening. We had tactics manuals and other things like that, and my expression was, uh, an inexperienced fighter pilot never got to chapter two in the book, and he always was doing dumb things. And so, I think it was Brown was with me. Uh, we, we jumped a flight of 12, just the same way Davis did, the same damn thing. In fact, I thought about it when it happened. But we jumped these guys, and uh, and I told him, I told Brown when we rolled in on him, I said, uh, I think if I was red lead at something. I said red two. Uh, we're going to jump these. We're going to jump this last flight. And if they pull up to the right, and stay there, the guy I, we'll know they're red chapter two, and we're getting out of here. We aren't going to be here very long because th- there's two here and two here, and. When you come in, if these guys see you coming, they pull off like this, and if they don't want to fight, they just keep right on turning and go home, which is what they did. But what I was afraid of was that they'd come up like this and gain some altitude, reverse their turn, and parallel the other two down here. Now if I, now if I continue on in, these guys would come in and got a shot at us. So that, that's a guy who's read Chapter 2. <laughs> When I went home then, I had 10 kills. I was a leading ace in the theater and, uh, until somebody else broke my record. about they, the records, My record was okay until around about March of the next year. It was good for about five or six months. But then they got in the F-86F, which had two 20-millimeter milli- cannons in it instead of the six guns. 6.50 calibers, so it gave it a lot more firepower. It had a 1,000 pounds more thrust in the engine, and it had a, a different slat arrangement, which allowed them to turn a lot tighter. And most of the kills they got from March of 1953 until July '53, when the war ended. If you go back and look at all the Aces, and I think there were 11 of us, that got 10 or more, Davis and I were the only two that got them in the old airplanes. And from uh, the, the next guy to get them, I think, was Baker. He was flying Fs and uh, so on. All those guys that, that uh, flew from, from March until July, they flew the best airplanes, and the MiGs were flying, and they were all shooting them down. It was... It would have, I'd like to have been there during that period.
0: That was Major General Frederick Boots-Blisset, Next time on Warriors In Their Own Words, we'll hear Blissay explain how his motto, No Guts, No Glory, was taught as doctrine throughout the Air Force, and how dogfighting has changed over the years. Thanks for listening to Warriors In Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors In Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars, Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Ruhl Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.